Hello, I'm Carl Helliker and welcome to Book Chat. Our guest today is Dr. Hal Gowen, and he's going to be talking uh, about a couple of books, uh, both sports books. One, Don't Call Me Coach, A Lesson Plan for Life by Phil Mortelli, and you wrote it with Phil Mortelli. Right. And the other one, Jumping Through Hoops, Why Penn Wins. Uh, not Penman, but Penn wins. It's <laughs> yes. a basketball book. Uh, Hal, Hal Gullen, as I mentioned, is a, a noted historian and a noted sports fan, as he tells me, who has written three previous books, I guess it's four now, including The Upset That Wasn't, a well-received analysis of the 1948 presidential election. Hal, welcome to Book Chat. That was a brilliant book, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's the, was the general's consensus, yes. yes. Uh, Hal, you are a professional historian by uh, education and used to writing uh, independently. So was it difficult to write a book with somebody else and, and in a subject matter which is maybe a little far afield from what you normally write about? I don't know that I would do it with great frequency. Mm -hmm. I found it relatively easy to do with Phil, and it was kind of my idea, not his. Now, it's, it's best if you're gonna do a collaborative book with somebody, do somebody has some ideas and some things to say. Mm -hmm. So you could almost say it was more dictated than written, that it's sort of as, sort of Phil Martelli has told to Harold Gullen okay. because the essence of it was we had all of these sessions of tape recorded conversations where I'd ask him questions and he would just talk. And that was the heart of the book. So the short answer to your question is it wasn't as hard as I thought, but I don't know that I could do it with very many other people. It was the way I thought that book ought to be done. Mm -hmm. Well, it turned out very well. It was it was Thank a fun you. book to, fun book to read and a lot of a lot of good insights in there. And I'm not surprised that it, uh, you see it at all the local bookstores. Uh, with all the bad press and admittedly <laughs> yes. uh, some of it deserved uh, that sports is getting, it's it's nice to have a couple of upbeat books about two successful and ethical sports programs. Uh, just uh, briefly as an overview, what is the, what is the positive message that you've uh, tried to convey in both books? Well, I, I think that it is possible to be Division One basketball, maybe not mega university Division One basketball, but where you do it the right way. And uh, they are doing it, they're doing it the right way. Now, of course, Penn doesn't have any athletic scholarships at all. That is not to say that there's not need-based financial right. aid. Right. But the remarkable thing about Penn is that they're operating under the, you know, the strictures of the Ivy League and they're able to, to play so competitively and, and, and invariably either they or Princeton go to the NCAA tournament every year. Right. When I say why Penn wins, that's a question you know, that has a lot of answers, but they are remarkably successful and, they're, and they've been in for years, a whole succession of excellent coaches and they go up and they just get worn down at the NCAA by the, by the tough inside guys, but they play very competitively. And of course, the, the great story, each of the big five teams has these wonderful stories. And the great story most recently was, of course, St. Joseph's in 2003 and right. four. this dream season where they really did play the right way and where they came very, very close to being in the final four. And I think people all over this country became aware of that little Jesuit university and yeah. what it represents. And and its teams are, I, th I think, are an authentic evocation of what the, the university represents. Mm -hmm. See, I started, you know, I made this transition from, from history, <laughs> popular history, hopefully popular yeah. history, because my agent, who oddly enough has since retired, said, Harold, is there a really great story in Philly? It wasn't the desire to go to sports specifically. And I said, I think the great story is about sports. And I think the best of those stories is about college basketball. So that's why I made the transition. But a lot of more noted you know, writers than I, like David Halberstam, for example, have made this transition very successfully. Mm -hmm. um, I guess there's almost sort of like a little catch-22 in the year. I'm saying you talk about a, a program like St. Joe's, uh, the little engine that couldn't, they had a great year. Mm. But by nature, since 
subjects are so academically grounded, the chance of them having another great year is not all that good. So you get get a situation where people no longer, three years after the fact, have that interest in that small team that so did so good because they did everything right. In order to keep that fame going, you have to start doing things wrong. Well, the the dream never dies. Yeah. And it's always there's always a Cinderella every year. Right. Uh, a, a team, so-called mid-major, I hate that term, so mm -hmm. does Martelli. The mid-majors like Bucknell, okay. George Mason, right. uh, that get pretty darn far. And, and that happens every year. The thing I think was unique about that year was that it was a school that, you know, that has strong, I'm not saying Bucknell doesn't, right. has very strong academic credentials as well. Wow. Now, bear in mind, St. Joseph's does give athletic scholarships, mm -hmm. at least to their basketball players, right. and their facilities are, are certainly better, are going to be better soon than they were. Right. But nobody goes there because of their facilities. They, right. they can't compete with the mega state universities, nor can they pay their coaches as much. But sure. at the same time, it is a big time Division One program. Mm -hmm to an extent greater than that of the Ivy League, let's say, right. where you're operating under certain restrictions. Okay, now the book, Don't Call Me Coach. What, uh, why doesn't <laughs> Phil Martelli like to be called coach? What he's saying is, that's a question we get asked all the time, you know. He's saying, uh, I, we're not defined by what we do. We take what we do seriously. Mm -hmm. I take coaching seriously. We're defined by who we are. So I don't like when I'm being introduced to somebody, uh, Carl, this is Coach Martelli. This is Phil Martelli. He's not Coach Martelli any more than your interviewer, you know. Yeah. You know, and any more than I. Hi, this is historian Gullen. Well, you yeah, won't be an interviewer much longer, but <laughs> you understand what he's saying is that we are, in a matter of speaking, we're all coaches in life. The first team is our family. We all do a certain. We all learn, right. and we all lead at different times in mm -hmm. our lives, and we're all book. We're each in each individual. That's the whole premise of the way he talks is the way he writes and the mm -hmm. way that I wrote, you right. know, so that he doesn't mind being called Coach Martelli in terms of context of, of, of you know, of what he does. He doesn't like to be categorized as Coach Martelli. He is a person, okay. you know, it's a little hard to explain, but yeah. it's a great title. Yeah, <laughs> it certainly is. And it's certainly different from the TV show, Coach. <laughs> Have you seen his TV, uh, Hawk Talk? He's uh, the most unique he, coach's yeah, show in the world. Yeah, it's great. It's all over the country. Yeah, it's, uh, the Sporting News said it was the best coach's show in the yeah. country, but what's the competition? I mean, it's That's all pretty true. stiff stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, despite not liking to be called coach, Martelli always wanted to be one. Always. Uh, when, he, when did he decide on being it, a coach? It's, it's, a, it's a funny thing that even he really can't explain in eighth grade. For some reason, when he was a kid, he loved all sports. Yeah. He was growing up in Southwest Philly, and in those days, you could go out in an alley or playground by un, unsupervised. You know, it's a hundred years ago. You right, know, yeah. and he loved all sports like everyone else. But he was fascinated in part because of some of the youth coaches he had with the intricacies of basketball, and he understood early on that he he didn't have unlimited talents. He was a point guard. He liked having the ball in his hands. And somehow the strategy of basketball intrigued him more than the other sports, which he played each in its season. Mm -hmm. And by the eighth grade, when he had moved to Lansdowne, and there it was a little bit more organized, and he met these remarkable guys who kind of taught him life lessons. And then he mm -hmm. went to St. Joe's Prep, where he learned life lessons, and through basketball. And he thought, this is the most, he has an allure the other sports don't have. And in eighth grade, he was on a playground with a friend of his named Stevie Stefano. It's in the book. And he looked at him and said, Stevie, I'm going to be the head basketball coach at St. Joseph's. Well, it was college then at St. Yeah. Joe's. And yeah. Stevie looks incredulous and said, is that what you want to be? 
Um, talking about Martelli, in eighth grade, he decided he wanted to be right. a coach. I, I guess it's still unusual, I think, for a kid in eighth grade. I mean, you want to be an athlete. Exactly. Yeah. Well, he wanted to play, mm -hmm. but I think he sensed already okay. because he would organize kids in the yeah. neighborhood and yeah. they would always show up, you know. Yeah. I think he understood already that maybe his skills were not up to playing in Division One level. And they, for some reason, you know, everybody adopted a, a team in the Big Five or the Big Six, really, if you include Mm -hmm. Drexel. And his, his family's favorite team, although they had no relationship to it specifically, was St. Joe's. Yeah. His mother and his father, they all claimed that they, they got him interested in St. Joe's because you'd watch the flickering black and white television. And, you, and he loved St. Joe's. There was something about it. There was Coach Jack Ramsey, Dr. Yeah. Jack. I mean, my gosh, Dr. Jack Ramsey, you know, sitting on one knee like Patton looking over the battlefield. There was that crazy mascot who never stopped, you know, flapping, <laughs> going to figure eights. It was something. Yeah. It was that student body. There was something he just liked about it. And he just decided that's where he wanted to go. That's why he wanted to go to St. Joe's Prep. At that time, he thought that was the way to get to St. Joe's College. But ultimately, when he found he wasn't quite up to the level of playing Division I, his desire was more and more to learn how to coach. All right. Well, let's talk, you know, all, all of us, uh, cliche, were molded by our parents and our yes. family comes before us. And Martelli had some strong role figures in his life, his uh, parents and his grandfather. Uh, tell us about how they uh, molded him as a, as a man and uh, a coach. Well, his grandfather, this is a very colorful character, as you may have noted here. And he has great recollections of his grandfather, who somehow... Uh, always seemed to have money to give him. He wasn't the warm and fuzzy. It destroys all your ethnic stereotypes. I mean, he is of Italian heritage, but his mother is Irish. They don't even know where they come from out there. So it wasn't like having, you know, red gravy meals every Sunday at two o'clock or the Blessed Virgin in the window. His, his grandfather was a fascinating character who seemed to be making money in the basement and bought him his first car and never asked for anything back. Wasn't warm and fuzzy, never hugged yeah, him or anything. Yeah. Most interesting character, if he's writing for the Reader's Digest, his most interesting character I ever met. Remembers him with great clarity. His parents are kind of dissimilar and yet they were wonderful. They, they were no more affectionate, really. You know, affection comes in many forms. They weren't hugging and kissing all the time, but he never doubted that yeah. he and his siblings were loved. His father worked at two or three jobs virtually all of his life to make sure his kids had what they needed. His mother was a stay-at-home mom, which would seem bizarre today. So both parents were there for him, and she didn't go to work until somewhat later when she was a waitress over at a hotel near Penn, but she was always there when he came home from school. So he had a very, a very close-knit family, and yet he, they don't remember each other's birthdays, they're not gushy, you yeah. know, and all this, and yet the affection was evident, and, and they set a standard for him of, of uh, treating everyone the same way. There was never a raised voice, there was never any bigotry. You know, he would bring black kids home and it didn't matter. That's another thing he loved about basketball. It didn't matter what color you were, where you're from, how big you were. Mm -hmm. There was a place for you in the game. So they set an example for him and their Catholic face, unspoken. You know, there was they were not demonstrative parents, except his father who would, who would argue with refs until Martelli became a coach and said, please stop doing this, you know. Other than that, they were not a demonstrative family and yet he knew how they felt and they set an example for him of uh, both religious values and human values that I think he's, he's accepted and lived through his whole life. You have to know where your heart is. And he's, he's turned down after 2004 a lot of much more lucrative places he could have, taught, yeah. he could have coached, as, as generous as St. Joseph's is. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so Martelli has in the back of the mind he wants to coach at St. Joe's, yeah. but he chose to go to college elsewhere. He didn't feel that he could play 
uh, Division One basketball. And so he ultimately, it's a long story, which I won't inflict on you <laughs> in its entirety. He ultimately went to Widener, which turned out to be close to home and which played a very competitive Division Three schedule. He made very close friends there and had a very good time at Widener and has great affection for Widener. But as soon as he graduated, the only other thing he considered was maybe going to law school. And he wondered how realistic it was. You know, he had a sort mm -hmm. of time frame that he was going to be an assistant coach at a high school, you know, first. And then by the age of 30, he'd be an assistant in college. And by the age of 35, he'd be a college head coach. He had it all mapped out. He was sitting in his room at Widener reading every book he could about coaching. And the result was that uh, he didn't quite make the mark. That is, he didn't become head coach at St. Joseph's until several years mm -hmm. after he had planned to. But it worked out almost the way he had told Stevie Stefano in eighth grade. And for, for about nine years, he was an assistant to two remarkable head coaches there who he talks a lot about, John Griffin and, and, and Jim Boyle, who he views as his real mentors, along with Kathy Rush, who he's very close to, the Immaculata coach who right. really created women's basketball. Right. And his wife played at Immaculata, so there's a tie in there. Uh, so he actually achieved what he really wanted to do in life. And we don't all have that opportunity. Right. Now, what was his traje trajectory? <laughs> I'm sorry about that. About, uh, it, it took quite a while for him to end up on Hawk Hill. Where was he coaching before that? He said everything he learned was in high school. And he felt, in fact, he was pretty good at selling himself at an early age. And so he became the head coach of Bishop Kenrick High School. It was on the Catholic League, a school with a lot of athletic tradition. He was only 23. And he really felt that he had let those kids down that he didn't know very much about. I mean, he, he made a great impression. Yeah. He didn't know much about coaching in those days. And you, you read the book, it goes back and back to that experience. Now, after he'd been there a couple of years, he felt he was doing a better job. And he went to Kathy Rush, who helped him because the whole thing is preparation. He didn't have a game plan, not just for the next game, but for a whole season, for a whole team, for the next couple of years. He didn't develop that initially. And he thinks back to those kids who he felt he let down that year, but ultimately he had a lot of success at Bishop Kendrick, and then he went to other uh, Catholic schools. He was he was teaching and coaching at the same time. He talks about, you know, they make so much money today. He was making like $4,400 and using it up in gas and oil. Yeah. This is in the, the 1970s. And ultimately, through a series of circumstances we don't have time to go into, but are fascinating, he winds up as the assistant coach on Hawk Hill. Mm -hmm. And he says by the second day, he found out where the field house was, and it took nine years before he became head coach through another interesting set of circumstances. So that he, 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 he wasn't quite 35, I think he was more like 40, but at that juncture, he's been there for the last 12 years now, and he doesn't really, and after 2004, he was getting incredible job offers. And he, you know, to paraphrase uh, Oscar, not Oscar the Grouch, who's the guy, the green, said it's, it's not easy, uh, Kermit the Kermit Frog. The Frog, yeah. He said, it's not easy turning down green. Sure, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, and he says, his wife said, well, you know, what's a couple of hundred thousand a year? And they, right. they would laugh together when he wasn't crying, you know, but he yeah. said, you got to know where your heart is. He's got 26 relatives who go to all the games. His father, God love him, is still around. You can see him not only every game, every practice. He's on the top and he has very strong views about who should start, you know, who should play, but he doesn't inflict them on him yeah. anymore. So the fact that he has his whole family around here and all these siblings and the grandchildren, and he has two, three children. The two sons are coaches, uh, yeah. assistant coaches in college mm -hmm. basketball. He did not push them that yeah. way. His wife is a better shooter than he ever was. Yeah. And his, his daughter is at St. Joe's, and she has played sports as well. So they all became part of his life as a coach and, and don't resent it. 
even though he was away so much as coaches have to be. Uh, lesson plan for life. Uh, the book promises the reader a lesson plan for life. So, so <laughs> tell us about what that plan is in the words of Phil. Well, about a quarter of the book is that is that chapter. It's like nine to take with you. And if you read the headings, they're not all that different from other coaches. Don't take yourself too seriously. Not every win is a winning situation, etc. What makes it distinctive is he's writing this in a very conversational style. He's not saying like most motivational books, look, you do these 10 things and you'll guaranteed you'll be a success, you'll make money. He's saying, no, look, I've, I'm a regular guy, just an ordinary guy who's had an extraordinary opportunity. And it may be that in the, this exceptional opportunity, and I may have had some experiences over these 30 years of coaching that may be of help to you. No matter what you do, even if you're an interviewer, you know, no matter what you do in your own life, because we're, you know, we're all coaches. Right. I hope so, because that's why I've written it. And, and it's the illustrations that make it interesting. And I think what makes it distinctive and different from other books of this kind is it's so unpretentious. Saying, I hope this will help you. And, but it's a two-way street. I'm interested in what you have to say. So I think it's very different. I'm not denigrating other books of this kind. Different from other books because the mm -hmm. illustrations are so interesting and right. they come out of his own experience. And he's not promising you'll be a success. He's saying, I think this would be helpful to you. And he didn't want an autobiography. He said, mm -hmm. I, I don't deserve one yet. I'm too young anyway. <laughs> so it was the only disagreement we had is I wanted more of these anecdotes that I found so colorful right. about his own life. And he wanted it be, to be more this lesson plan for life. So it was a compromise I think worked out pretty well. All right, the, the 2003-2004 season that you've, you've mentioned, just briefly tell us about what made that season so great. Well, you know, everything, everything aligned. Uh, you might say Jameer Nelson, who comes, you know, he was the outstanding player on that team, although it was a very close-knit team, comes from the mean streets of Chester, and he's just mature beyond his years, as you can see now as a pro. When he decided to come back for his senior season, you know, if you risk injury there, you know, your physical yeah. kind of deprived background, uh, that made a good team a great team. And it happened that one player, Dwayne Lee's uh, mother, his father died, his mother died, and everyone went up to see her, to see the funeral, and that somehow they kind of bonded there. You know, most of these kids had never even been to a funeral. And they're from all different, like, like any good, all different backgrounds and different countries and different eth ethnic groups and different mm -hmm. economic levels. And when they came together, and as I think Phil put it very well, so they, you know, they touched it. They shook his hand and touched his heart, and that team just was very, very close. They played a very unselfish brand of basketball. They passed a lot. Uh, it was four guards. I mean, I don't want to get into the intricacies yeah. of this, but the way they played was well-suited to that. There was no trash-talking. There's none of that stuff that people object to so much. Even Bobby Knight, when they beat his team, Texas Tech said, young kids should see the way this team plays. So together, you know. And that's the way to play basketball. So it was a unique team, but it was composed of some remarkable talents. It wasn't just Jameer Nelson. It was Delonte West and Pat Carroll and others. But beyond that, they played beautifully together. They played team basketball. And in fact, when it was over and they lost by, you know, that last minute shot. Uh, and, you know, it's over with such finale. And you get that picture of Jameer sitting on the floor. And he said to his teammates once it, when he had he composed himself, uh, the only thing I ever wanted to be was the best teammate anybody ever had. So I don't feel like we really lost today. And then Phil mm -hmm. said to that team, if this is the worst day of your life, when they were supposed to go, they were the yeah. number one team in the country and didn't make it, this is the worst day of your life, you'll have a very blessed life. So the whole attitude of the yeah. coach, the coaching staff, and those players was unique. Now, and you say it may never come again, mm -hmm. but you, you've got to keep dreaming. 
Yeah. Uh, of course, through this whole interview, you kind of built us this picture of film mortality. But just let me ask you just uh, uh, sort of in conclusion with this book. Uh, what, what makes Martelli a successful coach and how does he define success? I'm, I would say he probably defines success in playing or living the very best way you can. We're not, we're not stationary in life. We either improve every day or we, or we go back every day. And if you can say in that day that you're a little better than you were the day before, that's a success. Success is not based on victories. Or def- yeah. Success is, is, is achieving the highest level that you can. That's kind of a bromide, but he really believes that. Mm-hmm. He makes more personal appearances than anybody I've ever seen to the extent that some people say, you're spending too much time away. He didn't say no to anybody. He's, he's always out maybe 150 times a year He'll he'll uh, he'll do the silent auction. Oh, it's hard for him to be silent anywhere. <laughs> he is very personable, as you know. And some people may think that's kind of a, kind of an act, but it isn't. He's extraordinarily genuine. He knows people by their first names. He's he's just a very comfortable person to be with. And uh, I, I think at the same time, he's very serious about about coaching. Even though the the title of the book is "Don't Call Me Coach." But he views coaching as more than just putting, you know, X's and O's together and five guys on the court. You know, um, just with the, the book about Penn here. Uh, yeah, there is another book. <laughs> there, is, there is another book. Uh, the Martelli book was an uh, uh, excellent book, and this is a good one, too. Uh, but, Martelli didn't write that book. <laughs> well, well, despite that flaw, it's still pretty good. Uh, what about the two programs? Do you see comparisons? I mean, uh, Comparisons. I know they're completely different types of schools and programs, but I think they're... Well, I think they're comparisons. I mean, what I did, I wrote the pen book because I was waiting for Phil to make up his mind whether he wanted to have a book. So I thought it would be fun to be a poor man's Feinstein and sit around watching a a typical, and there's never a typical season. That was great fun as a fan. Uh, They're similar in that they have kids of, of character. Now, Martelli has an advantage because he's gone, you know, much further and he can offer scholarships. And he can take kids who may be marginal academically if he feels they have character. There's one chapter that says, you know, character is, you know, is, is more important than talent. And uh, teamwork is more important than talent. So he, he has a larger pool. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's much more challenging, I think, at a pen to have the success that they've had. And I think that's why Dunphy went ultimately to Temple to see what could he do without those constraints. But there's a similarity in the character of the kids. It's just a, there are a lot of very bright kids at Penn, one of whom nearly got a Rhodes Scholarship, though. That, I'm not saying that wouldn't happen at St. Right. Joseph's, but the kids at Penn are typical kids at Penn, and the kids at St. Joseph's are typical kids at St. Joseph's. But Martelli has a much much larger, larger pool to, to try to get you know, recruits from. Right. Um, well, you know, I was going to throw out another question, but I just realized we uh, are coming to the end of the uh, fourth quarter over. here. Go over <laughs> But uh, I want to thank you today, Dr. Hal Gullen, for joining us on Book Chat. Uh, the books, Don't Call Me Coach, A Lesson Plan for Life by Phil Martelli, and Jumping Through Hoops, Why Penn Wins. Two very good books about two very good programs right in our own uh, backyards. So, Hal, thank you for joining us today. Thank my, you for having me. My pleasure. I'm Carl Hallecker, and you've been watching Book Chat.